0: everyone. 10.05, right? All right. Well, I'm happy to say that I am not teaching on this class today. I am just up here to introduce to you today Bishop Gregory Brewer, who will do a much better job than I would. Uh, Bishop Brewer is the Diocesan Bishop of Central Florida, where he has been bishop since 2012. Prior to his consecration as bishop, he was the rector of Calvary St. George's in Manhattan, New York, He also has served in churches in uh, central Florida, New Covenant, I think it was, in central Florida, and um, Church of the Good Shepherd in Paoli, Pennsylvania. Oh, good Samaritan, I'm sorry. That's what I get for going from memory. (laughs) Good thing we have an expert. He knows knows where he served. Uh, And then he also did serve as the assistant or associate professor of pastoral theology at Trinity School for Ministry as well. So please join me in welcoming Bishop Gregory Brewer.
1: Well, no surprise to you, I'm on a very tight schedule this morning. Um, and it, uh, but I know what this is like. The church where I served, Good Samaritan, which is in Paley outside of Philadelphia. Very similar in terms of scope, staff, demands, et cetera. I had to just laugh. We were getting in the sacristy and column was saying, now oh, you're going to say this, right? And you're going to say this. And I thought, I remember those days. <laughs> um, here's what I want to talk about this morning. Caroline basically called and said, what do you want to talk about in terms of evangelism? So what I wanted to actually share is, in some ways, how I approach evangelism personally. Uh, not programmatically organizing classes and the like, but how I think about the responsibility I bear individually as a Christian to, in essence, be about God's business. And so that's so what I'm really going to be talking about is, in some ways, story as well as prayer and scripture. And where I would like to begin is by offering the third collect for missions in morning prayer the author is a man by the name of jeremy brent who was the first episcopal bishop in the philippines if you go to the philippines you will see brent hospital brent theological all these things built after after him and he was a man who really lived what he prayed and so i will offer his prayer for us myself included so let's begin there the lord be with you, and also with you. let us pray lord jesus christ You stretched out your arms of love on the hard wood of the cross that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we reaching forth our hands in love may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you for the honor of your name. Amen. Amen. So, definition of evangelism. To bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you. There's a lot that we can do in service, but if we're talking evangelism, what we're talking about is in some form or another a contractual conversation that opens the door for a person listening to to hear things about Jesus that they are hungry to receive. That's it. Anything other than that, is, might be great works, but it's not specifically evangelism at that point. Now, there are people who have been brought to faith in Christ by extraordinary witnesses or service projects. Uh, a friend of mine at one time was actually the chaplain in Paris at the Sorbonne, and he was a staff member for Campus Crusade for Christ. And this was the story he told. He said... There is such hostility to any kind of Christian faith at the Sorbonne that even if I, he said, have a cross, uh, it's looked upon as at best jewelry, not a statement of any kind of personal faith. And so we began to pray and wrestle with how could we bring the gospel to the campus of the Sorbonne. And what, to their surprise, what happened was that God began to awaken in them a burden for the poorest of the poor in that part of Paris. And what they began to do was organize themselves to go and provide various ministries and services to the poor. And what they would do is invite the students to come and join them. As they invited the students to come and join them, what the students noticed was it was just gratuitous free care nobody was getting paid they didn't care whether they were being noticed or not Uh, the compassion and the care and the savvy with which they served those people was profoundly impressive and finally the question was raised why are you doing this and when they asked that question that became the door for them to talk about a God who loves everybody, no matter who they are, that all people matter, and that they, these whom we are serving, matter in God's eyes just as much as us or you or anybody else. And that became the doorway that allowed them to not just talk about Jesus, but invite them into, which is profoundly biblical, an understanding of the Christian life that is committed first and foremost to service. And they made disciples. It happened. People came to faith. And not only that, but a witness arose for Christians in Paris through that group of people. It really was tremendously astonishing. And the guy who was telling me this story, his brother actually is a, was an Episcopal priest, he still is actually, and served on my staff in Philadelphia. and um, And I got to see it in Paris. It was really quite extraordinary. You see if there is the capacity to be able to be available for God to use us, that in its heart is what opens the door for God to be able to use us in a way that invites us into the lives of other people. Because you never know. For example, um, I go to a particular dry cleaner not too far from where I and my family own a home. And the guy who owns that dry cleaner is a uh, Pakistani. He is Buddhist. He was born and raised in Kenya. And his family immigrated to the United States. And when I go in, I mean, I'm often dressed like this because I'm dropping suits and things off on my way to work. And so he knows what I do and all of that, and so we talk. I ask about his family, his wife works in the business. If the kids are home from school, guess where they are? They're also working at the dry cleaner. And uh, so we're striking up a friendship. One day I called because I drove past and it didn't look right, and so I called. He answered the phone they had been robbed. Somebody had broken into the business, stolen all of the money and all of that. He was very glad that at that point I literally turned around and showed up in the parking lot. How are you doing? Do you you have the insurance to be able to cover this? Is everybody okay? And all of that. Those kinds of relational building blocks are what begins to open the door. To begin to have a conversation of, again, why do you do what you do? That creates the opportunity to be able to share about Christian faith. Even, I talked, if you were at the earlier service, or if not, maybe you'll be at the later one, uh, about how I'd gone to a retreat in the middle of my freshman year of college. I, at that point, was entirely estranged from the church was really happy not to go to anything like that. And the only reason I went, quite frankly, was to please somebody whose opinion mattered to me, not because I actually thought I needed that sort of thing. I'd grown up in the church, I'd been baptized as an infant, and I was sort of, you know, feeling my oats. And, uh, and what was quite amazing to me was that I had never encountered a group of people who exhibited at this retreat such laughter, joy, um, And there was nothing cynical or sardonic about the humor. Uh, It was just clean. And honestly, it just caused me to go, who are these people? And just the, the joy of their witness, the quickness with which they prayed for each other, was something that I had not encountered in terms of my experience of church. And that is what opened the door for me to begin to ask the questions Tell me why you are the way you are. I know about church people, but you are not like the people that I've known before. All of that is to say, first of all, let's take a progression. It begins with a willingness and an openness and even a hunger for God to use you in the lives of other people and to intentionally make room in your schedule to be available even if it's not on your schedule, story. I'm leaving my house. I'm on my way to work. I had not had any breakfast. I was really hungry. All I'd had was some coffee. And, uh, and where I live is kind of a food desert. Um, they're convenience stores, but you really have to get out of the neighborhood to get to where the restaurants are. And, and so I'm not sure what I'm going to do because I, I, I moved specifically to this home. We bought this home so I could take back roads in into downtown Orlando to where our offices are because the traffic is horrific. And uh, so you know, I'm looking. Well, the, I see a Circle K convenience store up on my left, and I feel the distinct impression that I should stop there. And I'm like, really? I mean, I didn't want to do it. But it wouldn't go away. And I know enough now to know that when something like that happens, that has to do with God saying, go over there. It's okay. So I wheeled into the parking lot. And and I'm walking around and figuring out what I'm going to get. And so I get, you know, like a granola bar and some juice or something. I can't remember. And I come up, and here's the lady behind the counter. It's probably about 8 in the morning. And I, I say, how are you? I always greet the people who serve me whether it's the cash register, people at the grocery store, whomever. And I really mean it. I say, how are you? And, uh, and she says to my utter astonishment, she said, you know, I'm doing pretty well because I got up, or, I got up early enough to be able to pray this morning. And I said, really, tell me about that. So she and I all of a sudden are having this incredible conversation uh, about Jesus. She's a committed Christian and all of that. I've, I've never seen her since, by the way. And um, and I walked away, and that was God's nudge of encouragement to me. It was exactly what I needed because I'm like this when my day starts. I'm on my phone. I'm looking and seeing what all my appointments are. I'm trying to think about who's, whose email I need to return, what's going on with so-and-so. That's kind of how my life is, and I like it like that, quite frankly. If it, as my wife says, if it wasn't complicated, you would be bored, and she's right. So in some ways, this position suits me in that way. But to have that moment of refreshment at the Circle K with this woman who was just sharing about her prayer time that morning uh, was a gift to me. In some ways, that's what we're hoping that God will do through us into the lives of other people, Christian or not. So it begins by, in essence, saying, God, work in me the capacity to be available because I'm, I must confess to you that if you're driven by lists and calendar and all of that, it's actually both irresponsible sometimes to make room for the surprises, and if you like to be in control of your schedule and you know, your satisfaction is getting your list done, you feel out of control when you're making room for things that aren't there. So God has actually had to deal with me about the freedom to be available in those times even when I don't expect it, when it's not on my calendar, well, too bad. God loves the world a lot more than he loves my calendar. And so that's availability. So wherever I am, whether it's wait staff at a restaurant or wherever I am, I always ask the how are you question. And if they give me any inkling at all, I'm saying, I'd be happy to pray about that if you'd like me to. People, particularly if if you're not dressed like this, people are shocked. Sometimes they're scared. More often than not, they're grateful. I was in Baltimore just two weeks ago at the Grand Hyatt with a team of people from the Daughters of the King, their national leadership. Daughters are just the most astonishing prayer women. I mean, I just love being with them. They are warriors and just extraordinary people. And so we were planning, and so we're going back this summer because daughters always have their national meeting right in line with the Episcopal Church's General Convention. So that's why we were in Baltimore, because that's where all this is going to happen. So I'm just striking up a conversation with the event coordinator there, a young Chinese man, and... um, and so we're talking, and, I, and I've been sort of watching him and praying for him. You see, that's where it starts. You're looking for opportunities. You begin to pray for people. They're prayer lists that you begin to develop for people whom you long to see to be available for Christ. And so, because intercession is what changes things. It's not being clever or having the right words to say when the time comes. Those are helpful. But in the end, no one can come except the Father draw them. Remember? And therefore, that's where the prayer You're pr- comes. You're praying for the Father to begin to draw people for himself. So I'm praying for Jim, the guy who's the event coordinator. And we're there for four days. And every single time I make a point of walking up to him, asking about what he's doing, and if I see something that I can compliment, it's clear you really love your job, don't you? You know Things like that. Because otherwise, that kind of encouragement, again, particularly for somebody in his position, what they get are the complaints. You know, I came in the room, was set up, and I asked for this and this, and I only got that, and I didn't get this. That's kind of how his life runs. And so to express appreciation, to notice the things that they're doing really well, uh, and I finally began to say, well, as you know, that we're a group of people who pray, and that's what we're planning for. Is there any way that we can be praying for you, I asked. He got real still. And he started talking about the tremendous demands of his job as opposed to his responsibilities and the time he wants to take with his wife. Do you have children? He said, oh, no. My wife works full-time outside of the home. I work 50, 60 hours a week. There's no way we even have time for kids. So would you like to be a dad? Oh, yeah. I would love to be a father. And that's, you see, what opened the door. We're now going back and forth, some because I'm going to be back at that same hotel with 500 Daughters of the King this coming summer with people from all over the world. And he's the guy. He's the event coordinator. So I'm continuing to pray for him. He has yet to say yes to Jesus. But you see, a relationship of care is being developed that will allow for that conversation to be able to happen. Not just necessarily with me, but if he knows Christians who care for him, who aren't crazy, who are people that he admires in some way, and and that we're just regular people in the midst of all of that, that's going to open his heart to anybody else who might come his way who could begin to offer a Christian witness. You see, all of us are just a thread in the fabric, but it's an essential thread. We have a role that we have to play and are called to pray in the lives of all kinds of people. And so where it begins, Lord, what would, what would you have me do? And then out of, be, out of that being available for God to use you because the opportunities to be able to share the gospel with people are, in fact, the most important thing that you, that you could do as a Christian. That we may bring those who do not love you to the knowledge and love, of love of you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. In other words, how we got started was he's a rabbi. Guess what? He's actually the Son of God. In other words, we now no longer Christ from a human point of view. We know him, you see, as the eternal Son of God. But the same transition, the same transaction in seeing comes in seeing people as people whom God made, whom God loves, who are indispensable on this planet, and that there are no second-class citizens that all of us in a very, very profound way share a kind of common humanity that makes it possible for us to even cross cultural racial lines to build relationships for the sake of the kingdom. And out of that he said, so if anyone is in Christ, anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation the oldest passed away. In other words, the possibility of being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ deeply and profoundly and eternally is possible for any human being, even the most ugly, demanding, self-centered, tyrannical people that you know. I mean, there is there is a liability in leadership. And I can tell stories about this, but I won't. And it's called narcissistic personality disorder, where people get into positions of responsibility so that they can run things the way they want. And particularly if they were a clergy college, they're profoundly dangerous. And there are people like that in the various professions. And more often than not, those are the ones who wind up if they are allowed to continue to sort of grow and develop in that narcissism, that end up in the papers for sexual misconduct, financial mismanagement, and the like. And so those stories are all over the place. And I know that when I walk into the local Panera near my office to get coffee or a salad to take out, and I'm dressed like this, you ought to see the way people look at me. Some immediately look the other way. Uh, Some look with disdain. Some look with kind of, yeah, okay, whoever, whatever. And some occasionally with some mild curiosity. Because for many people who are not a part of church life, or even if they are, their experience of the church has been dreadful. They believe the caricatures, of what they see on the media, or they know people who 've been profoundly wounded by people in the life of the church. the lady who used to cut my hair um, i 'd go and sit down and immediately. it was like, it was like a, a Bible lesson every time she asked me question after question after question, and every time we 'd come to the end i 'd say, you know i 'm teaching a class on this in about two weeks over at good Samaritan it 's not really far from your shop at all. I could never go there." And finally, I asked her why, and it was because through her, that her dad basically had been walked into alcoholism by his local Roman Catholic priest, and he saw how his dad's, her dad's life had been so utterly destroyed, and therefore, because that was the case, she wanted nothing to do with the institution of the church, but she was profoundly spiritually hungry, what I have on my, sort of one of my descriptions on my Twitter feed is I say I want to talk to people about Jesus who have an interest in Jesus but a problem with the church because there are lots of people like that. You see, if you're going to be open to, for God to use you in the lives of other people, two things are going to be asked of you. For you to be noticed, have you, and I want you to notice this thread, you will go out of your way in sacrificial love to serve that individual, whether it was serving the poor in the sermon, or me even just turning around and heading back to the dry cleaner, rather than saying, I'm really sorry that happened to you, are you okay, and then taking off. It is the enactment of the parable of the Good Samaritan, the one who is is exalted by Jesus, who got off his donkey, took the guy to the inn, paid for his ability to be able to remain there, and he's the one who actually acknowledged the need of his neighbor, You see, I, and that's a part of what sort of catches many of us because we have a very clear circle of responsibilities, many of us, and it has to do with work and it has to do with family. It has to do with other obligations that we have in the city or in our neighborhood, and that's more than enough, and therefore that's our circle. Well, what happens in the light of that is that for many of us, We actually expect God to reinforce that circle to keep us financially prosperous, for our families to be safe, And for us to live in a level of prosperity that is ours by right, we've sure earned it and inherited it, and therefore why not? But in fact, what happens again and again and again is that people that God uses in a way that causes other people to come to faith is that God takes them somehow out of that circle. Not completely. You're always in it. If you were born in it, you're in it till the day you die. But the fact of the matter is is that God's world is bigger than that. And when you begin to step out of those boundaries into places where people don't expect you to go, that's what causes people to notice. You're acting in a way that is different from the other people that they know, and that's what gets their attention. Those are the people who other people notice. There's a friend of mine. His name is Esau McCauley. Esau teaches New Testament at Wheaton College, and he wrote a rather extraordinary book called uh, Reading While Black, and it's about his experience of an African-American Christian reading the New Testament. It's an excellent book, and um, he occasionally is a columnist in the New York Times. Well, because Esau operates in circles that are beyond the limitations of his own kind of evangelical home base... He's actually subject to quite a lot of attack. A lot of it's jealousy, because he's got some notoriety. But some of it's racist. And in the end, what happens, he really gets beat up. I mean, emotionally, it is very hard from here to hear this kind of criticism from his fellow Christians. But the fact of the matter is, is that because he was willing to speak up about things that others were not, to write about them eloquently, and even to have an opportunity to be able to share you ought to read his columns in The Times. They're amazing. When they come up, people are talking to him who were not talking to any other Christians. You see, he was able to step out and out of that be available for God to use him, and that opened the doors. For him to go places others could not and therefore gain a hearing for the gospel among people who thought they knew everything there was to know about church. In other words, to say yes to actually being available for God to use you will ask of you some kind of sacrifice to pull you out of what you anticipate to be your normal day or your normal life. You just never know. And to do that means there has to be within you and me a kind of profound security in Jesus. I know he loves me. I know that he holds me in the palm of his hand, that nothing can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, my Lord. And that the very same spirit, I'm just quoting the Bible, see, that raised Jesus from the dead is right here. And that's true for every believer in Jesus Christ, which means there's extraordinary spiritual power available for us, but available for us not just so that we can feel better, but available so that we can be, again, what does the scripture say? Empowered for witness. That's why we have the Holy Spirit, but to cement our relationship in Jesus and equip us to be available to serve other people. And so what God will do is open doors for us that we have to rely on him. He uses that to tutor us so that we can take more risks, not hold back, because we step out and it's like, wow, look what God just did. And you know it's him, because there's no way you could do that on your own. And that opens, I want more of that, God. It's, It's actually kind of addictive in a good way, because what it begins to speak to in the deepest recesses of your soul is that you are fulfilling a divine purpose that's far more important, far greater, than any expectations other people had of you or that you had of yourself. And that's the joy of doing this, of knowing that even if it's at great personal cost, you are making an eternal difference that matters. That's worth being available for. Let me tell you, that is worth being available for. So, being available for God to use you has to do with, I want to be available, knowing that what God is going to do is cause you to take risks. You'll begin to see people in a way that you did not before, because everybody matters, and God is going to begin to adjust your vision so that you'll see all of a sudden. I mean, even this morning, there was a, particular, a couple of people in the church today, I'm just, you know, looking and I'm seeing them come forward to receive communion. I really started praying, particularly for one person. I have no idea why I was supposed to do that. I didn't know that, but I knew I was supposed to pray. Because you're available for God to use you whenever or wherever because everybody matters. So whether it's the event planner at the Hyatt in Baltimore, whether it's the guy I'm praying for, whether it's the conversation I have with the woman at the Circle K, I mean, Bonhoeffer's line, who is Jesus Christ? He's a man for others. That's actually the definition of what it means to be a believer in Jesus. That's actually what it means to be a Christian who walks in faith. And you understand that God is not here to take care of all of my needs. God is here to equip me to serve And that in serving, I find purpose, provision, and real miraculous grace. And I don't think it comes any other way. I don't think there's a plan B, in other words. But I think the adventure is available for anyone who's just willing, wherever they are, to say, work it in me, Lord. Help me to be available for you to use me in the lives of other people. Questions? Comments? Yes, sir. I have a question that was triggered by your, by your talk. Uh huh. Well, I, I I don't know about your friend, and I'm sure he's a very, very sacrificial person, but I, at least my experience of the gospel is it's like the more I know, the more I realize I don't know. Not only about who Jesus is, but what the gospel is, and even who I am as a human being. I mean, I'm 70 years of age, and I still feel like I'm just getting started. And... I and I wouldn't trade that for anything, by the way. So I, so I have a hard time, honestly, relating to someone who feels like they've sort of reached the pinnacle in sacrificial love. It, it actually feels odd to me, um, and that's not in any way discounting. But here's what I would think about. I'm sort of I talk out loud. You'll forgive me for this. Um, Jesus in the Gospel of John describes the role of the Holy Spirit as he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Meaning, in this case, Lord, I thank you for my friend and the sacrifices that he makes. I pray that you would continue to bless him in that sacrifice and continue to open his heart to new opportunities to be able to give and serve so that he can learn even more deeply to rely on you Because what sacrifice is meant to do is put us in positions where we have to rely on God because we know we can't do it on our own. If I can still accomplish it in my own strength, I'm still not really taking risks. Even if I'm taking more risks than the person to my right or to my left, I'm still operating within the realm of my own resources. And what God asks of us is to step out beyond that. That's actually what Caroline was trying to get to when she was making, not trying, she did, talking about stewardship. A part of the role of giving your money away is not only because you can be a blessing for so many, many people, but because it teaches your heart to know that where it comes from, all things come of thee, O oh Lord, not just my own accomplishments, and therefore it belongs to you, and you can do with it wherever, whatever you want, including telling me to give money that I'm not even sure I can afford to give away, because it all comes from you, so I know that you're going to take care of me, and it'll be all right. Um, in other words, it's an active willingness to step into places of deeper and deeper dependency because the pinnacle of Christian maturity is not the human being who can stand up on her or his own two feet. It's a child who is willing to, be, to take the hand of her heavenly father. If you cannot accept the kingdom of God like a child, you do not enter it. Therefore, the pinnacle of maturity is childlike trust, not self-accomplishment. Yes, sir. There seems to be a decline in Christianity within the United States versus the world. I wonder if he had a comment about that. It's happened over the last 10, 20, or 30 years. Of Christianity. Did you all hear what he had to say, first of all? He, he talked about saying there appears to be a decline. I would actually say that in some ways that's true in the sense that in the sense that there is a shift most in my part of the world in central Florida the most dynamic filled with the holy spirit active sacrificial service people are not the anglo church they're almost entirely either afro-american afro-caribbean or hispanic They are doing phenomenal work in a way that doesn't get a lot of notice, but because they do not represent people who have the microphone or who are in power. And particularly when the Christians who have the microphone almost always are being shown because of their misdeeds. That creates the impression that Christianity is on the decline and among upper middle class people, that's very true. But there is an explosion of revival happening underneath the surface. And it's off the grid, nobody really notices it, but there's a reason that, for example, that one of the biggest churches in Orlando is Calvario a Hispanic Pentecostal church that has networks all over the city. It is absolutely astonishing, whereby, by contrast, uh, many of our Anglo churches are 50% full at best. 50%. Full at best. So I, I would not say that it's a decline as much as I would say it's a decline among certain populations, but a huge increase in others. And, in fact, the flow of immigration in this country, contrary to some of the concerns about personal safety and the like, actually is sending us extraordinary Christian evangelists who have come to Christ in Honduras and in Mexico and in places like that. It's really quite astonishing to watch. But that often does not get covered because it doesn't fit any sort of the media stereotypes. Yes, sir? <laughs> I the institution of the church and Christians as you're describing. I, I don't know about you. I'm glad my generation is beginning, is in essence on the wane because we've not done a particularly good job. And I can just tell you, you know, my own story. I grew up in a relatively affluent, almost entirely white neighborhood in Richmond, Virginia. The only people of color who came into my neighborhood were people who worked in the houses. They didn't buy the houses, believe me. And at that point, there was redlining in a way that made it impossible for them to be able to do so. So me and my kind do not naturally notice the things that I'm beginning to describe. And because that's the case, not only do we not pay attention to it, but we are under judgment because of it. You see, you see, in the sight of God, they're just as important. And so if I'm sinning against my neighbors, I'm not asking the question, who is my neighbor? I'm only paying attention to the people who look like me. That's not the point of the story. That's why the Samaritan is the hero, not the Jew. And because that's the case, we... If all we have is kind of left to our own devices, what we will do is reinforce systems that continue to reinforce our point of view rather than being available for God in a way that could actually change us and even sometimes threaten the system. Uh, So, but I want to tell you, again, in Central Florida, we're planting churches in Central Florida. We are, even though some of our more established churches are not as growing as, we're planting churches, almost all of them, are Hispanic. Spanish language phenomenal services. And believe me, you know some people are saying, how can we start another church? We can't afford it. You know, we don't want to lose the people that we have to go plant them and all the things that you hear when people are deeply invested in an institution. And then we have a, this guy. His name is Luis de la Cruz. He's from Colombia. He's actually a former Roman Catholic priest and an attorney. Brilliant. Uh, he started three churches and he's excited if 100 people show up at his church. And he's on the road all the time. You see, it's not a question of resources. It's a question of the heart. And so that's what's happening. I'm just there to kind of witness what God is doing. And, um, and that's what I want to be a part of. I mean, if you begin to be open for God to use you in the lives of other people, as I said, it's addicting. And in the end, you sort of say, I don't care who it is, Lord. I just want to be a part of what it is that you're doing. And when that happens, all of a sudden you begin to see the world, not just your circle. Very briefly, what time do we have to go? I see you walking toward me, Colin. Okay. I have another service that I'm going to. You know, I would say this. A part of the challenge of doing, in essence, cross-cultural evangelism is that the goal of what it is that you're trying to do is not make them Christians like you are. It's because if God loves the whole world, that means he really loves the people, in this case, of China and the things that they deeply value. Because there is, you know, God's, there's always a witness somewhere in every single culture. And there are things that can be held up and said, say, this, this sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? And it becomes a tie in the same way that, that we do. And because the goal, even in our churches that we're planning that are Spanish speaking churches, the goal is not to make them white Episcopalians. The goal actually, because, and in fact, even our seminary training, we do a terrible job of training people from other cultures, because in essence, what we want to do is make them white English Anglicans, no matter the color of their skin. And it's a denial of God's work in their culture when we do that. And so... And I'm really looking, actually, to look for models that would help raise up Hispanic people who really can celebrate the fact that they're Dominican or Puerto Rican or Mexican or Cuban and that God's been in that world just as long as he's been in any other world and that there are things in that world to be able to celebrate so that they don't end up actually being useless in evangelism because they're just too white. Um, And that's a challenge. It's a profound challenge. But thank you so much, Bishop.
0: Urban, You're welcome. For your wisdom. You're welcome. Thank you.